number of Psalms, verses 25 through 32. Psalms 119, beginning in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, as you know, Psalms 119, I'm sure you already know, you've gotten words, you know how that goes. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. So you don't need me to talk about how long the chapter is. Uh, it, by the way, is sort of juxtaposed a uh, couple of psalms over. Psalms 117 has the distinction of being the shortest uh, chapter in the Bible. So you have those two that are close by. Now, it is obviously, it, it's a long psalm, and we're not going to go through every verse, and especially in one sermon. But um, it's, it has a single theme. It is a protracted or a protracted tribute to God's word. Uh, so the psalmist, from a number of perspectives and a number of vantage points, he exalts the value of the Bible or the value, I should say, of God's word, the beauty of it, as well as God's or, or the need for God's holy word. It's the way that it's structured, and I know you've heard this over and over and over again, but let me just repeat it. It is an acrostic of the consisting of the Jewish or the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, it's an acrostic consisting of 22 stanzas, and each stanza is, is represented or is for a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, each stanza also has, each, uh, has eight lines, and each line of the stanza corresponds to the alphabet that it is under. So, for instance, uh, our, our uh, text is taken from the fourth stanza, which is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which accords to our letter D, which is Daleth in Hebrew. And so all eight stanzas or all eight lines of this stanza in the Hebrew actually begins with the letter D. And that's just the way that it's written. Now, uh, this psalm, with its singular theme, does not follow uh, a particular narrative flow. In other words, you don't build. You don't start in verse 1, and then by the time you get to the 150th verse, that theme has been built up. No, each, each stanza more or less stands alone. Uh, therefore, since it, now in each stanza is is what you would call the variation or the an emphasis of the overarching theme. 
So each stanza has as its subject matter the same subject matter of the whole psalm, which is the value and the beauty and the need for God's word. Uh, But each stanza stands alone in paying tribute to the value and the necessity of God's word. In other words, each stanza is self-contained. So you're not doing any harm to the flow, the rhythmic or the, uh, the ideological flow of the theme if you read from the first stanza and then you jump over to the fifth stanza. It, it's, they are all telling you different aspects, pointing to different aspects of the same truth, which is the, the, the primacy or the primacy of God's holy word. Now, also, it should be noted that there are a number of words that are used for God's word. And so even though it's used at sometimes interchangeably, but we find, we find testimonies, statutes, precepts, law, commandments. These are all just catch-all phrases used, in essence, for the totality of God's word. In other words, this is not just about the law, thus says the Lord, or the commandments of God, even though commandments are alluded to. But it also is anchored in the knowledge of God's word of promise. So it is the totality of God's word that is highly exalted in this great psalm. Now what I want to do this morning is just look at three things, uh, particularly from this particular fourth stanza. The first thing I'd like to note is from verse 32, as we kind of work our way backwards, where the psalmist expresses really what is the desire of every believer. And that desire, psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments. Another way of saying it is your commandments provide the proper course for my life. And that is, as I said, That is the desire of every Christian. Now, a lot of people will look at actions and different things when you hear of somebody being overtaken and and whatever it is, and we're quick to say, and they claim to be a Christian. And I always shudder when I hear that because the truth of the matter, we are defined not by what we do, but but what we believe. And what we believe is what directs what we do. So there is, you know, as much as there are some things that Christians ought not do, the truth of the matter is Christians do some of the, the, most, the, the worst things. If you don't believe me, just talk to anybody who's been in church a while. But here is something that I think it is safe to say. There is something that is a blanket statement, but I think it's safe to say. There is no such thing as a Christian that does not desire to walk according to the commandments of God. Now, does it, that's not what defines you, how you walk, uh, how consistent it is, or inconsistent, but there is no such thing as a Christian that does not desire to walk according to the, the word or the commandments of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has beforehand, or has prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them 
in obedience to God's law. So in other words, God has created us so that we could walk, it recreated us so that we could walk according to the law of God. So therefore, God has created us for this purpose so that we would walk according to his law. And this understood is not the cause of our salvation. Our walking according to the law of God is not the cause of our salvation. I want to say it again. Our obedience is not the reason we are saved. But our obedience is the fruit of our being saved. And before there is fruit, there must be desire. And so what is true of every believer is a desire to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. Not so that we can become children, but because as Paul says later in Ephesians, because we are the dear children of God's beloved. So therefore, our desire to keep his commandment is a fruit of our regeneration. In the same way that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not the cause of our salvation, but there is no Christian that does not hunger and thirst after salvation. Now here's what we'll do. We'll get sidetracked on that and we'll look at our failures and we'll look at, at our sometimes our sluggishness and our inconsistency, especially when it comes to others. Uh, this past week I had the privilege of preaching at Reformation Bible College in uh, Sanford and we preached from uh, Matthew 7 where Jesus says, judge not and be not judged. And then how can you take the, uh, you know, how can you take a, spo- a smoke, uh, a th- the speck out of your brother's eye and you have a log in your own eye. And so we looked at it from a few different vantage points. One is the optical effect or the optic effect of our fallen nature allows us to key in on what's wrong. In fact, I love the way the scripture says it. Not We don't see the log in our brother's eye. Here's what our fallen ability is. We can key in on the moat in our brother's eye. We can see it from a mile off. But here's part of the here's the other part of the optical effect of our fallen nature. We can't even see the log in our own eye. And so in our fallen condition, we have a tendency to maximize everyone else's sin, especially the people we don't like. And we minimize our own and everyone that we do like. So our best friend brings us gossip every morning. But it's just her. But if it's not our best friend, she's a gossip. You see, that's how we see things. And so here's what we know is true. Not our ability to to, to perform righteousness is a genuine fruit of our, or, uh, our, our ability to, to perform righteousness, that's not what saves us. That's not what defines us. What defines us as Christians is that everyone that God saves, he gives a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness. This hunger and thirst uh, after righteousness is given to us by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's part of the, it's the fruit of the regenerating work of the Spirit. And it is to be governed 
uh, or this desire to be governed by God's law is, again, it's, it's not only a gift or a fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but it is also, it's, it's the basis by which we, which we govern ourselves. And as a matter of fact, we can argue that the basis for the exhortations that we see in the scripture are anchored to that assumption that the people of God desire to do the will of God. And it's, it's, it's aimed at the fact that we individually desire it, and that's how we are to approach our brothers and sisters. We, have, we are to approach them as if they really do want to do the will of God, even when they fail to do it. That's the basis, that's the logic behind the exhortation that we see, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Because the assumption is... When we see a brother or sister not walking in obedience, we must desire, we we have to assume that they really want to be obedient. When we see them not, not giving themselves to the service of the Lord, we must begin with the assumption that this is really what they want to do. That they really do desire to please the Lord. That's the, that's the assumption. That's why we exhort. That's why we encourage. That's why we admonish. You see, if the goal is not to, 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 to do the will of God, then that's what we, you know, well, whoa, then what are we here for? See, our goal is to do the will of God and no one, no genuine believer, even if no matter how far out in left field they are, there is no genuine believer who does not want to please God. So we begin with that desire that's expressed in verse 32 because that's what he's doing. He's not telling you his reality. He's telling you his desire. I will, he says, I will run in essence. I will, I will run. I will let my running be ordered by your commandments because the assumption is it is the desire of every believer to walk in the ways and word of the Lord. Regardless of what that looks like, that is the desire. And, you know, what people are quick to say, well, it's easier said than done. Can I just share a little secret with you? Next time somebody tells you that, ask them what isn't. What isn't easier to say than it is to do? I mean, it's easier to say turn on the light switch than it is to turn on the light switch, even though the light switch, turning on the light switch is not much work. Everything we say, it's easier for us to say it than it is to do it. And so, therefore, the desire for every believer is to run according to the commandments of God. And brothers and sisters, when we reach a point in dealing with another believer, whether it's in the context of the, the, the governing structure of the church or individuals in your life, sometimes when it becomes evident that that is not their desire, then that's evident that the two are not walking together because it's not their desire to do the will of God. But that's the first thing. The first thing that stands out from the 32nd verse is that the desire for every believer is to run in the way of the commandments of the Lord. Here's the second thing. The psalmist also asserts 
what is necessary to carry out that desire. And what's necessary to carry out that desire is also in verse 32. If it's the desire is to run in the commandments of the Lord, then here is what is necessary. He says, when you enlarge my heart. Okay, when you enlarge my heart. So, so what is necessary in order for a believer who desires to run according to the commandments of the Lord, what is necessary in order for that to happen is that the human heart needs to be enlarged. Now, the word that's Hebrew word that's translated enlarge is pretty much the same as ours, and that is to make wide. And the reason that stands out is because when you consider it, the opposite of enlarging the heart is shrinking it. You know, so the opposite of to enlarge something is to shrink it. And so that being the case, the implication is that while God's word has an enlarging effect on the hearts of his people, there are other forces at work that are shrinking the heart. And see, that's the challenge that we live in, the the world in which we live, that, that God's word, God's promises, God's grace enlarges the heart, but there are experiences in life that shrink the heart. Now, I would argue that within the context of the other verses of this stanza, the other seven uh, statements here, we'll find three things from within this stanza that work against the enlarging of the heart. See, the context, God's word, God's word is given to us in a context, and the context in which it's given to us is the one in which we live, and it's not always peaches and cream. It's not always rainbows and unicorns. It it gets dark. And, And so there are some things that even as God's word enlarges our heart, I would argue again that there are at least three things mentioned in the body of this stanza that work towards shrinking the human heart. The first one is found in verse 25. The psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust. Now, there are two primary ways in which that phrase has been interpreted. Some refer it as, uh, some think it refers to worldliness, my dust referring to the world. And so, therefore, the writer would be saying, my soul clings to the world, as in a worldly sort of way. Now, I think worldliness is addressed elsewhere in this, uh, in this uh, stanza, but not here. I think a, a better way and a more appropriate understanding of clinging to the dust, my soul clings to the dust, is the other primary way in which this uh, phrase is understood that it refers to the fact and the threat of death. My soul clings to the dust. It it, it, it refers to the fact that death leaves a shadow over us. And as Solomon, Solomon makes this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, that if we are disengaged from an eternal perspective, then everything that is experienced on the horizontal makes no sense, including death. 
In fact, he argues that if we are disconnected to life just under the sun, then everything is vanity. And there is nothing that we are doing in life that makes sense. So that's that sort of pessimistic existentialism from a philosophical perspective. In other words, all that is is what we experience. And if there is no eternal perspective, then nothing under the sun makes sense. Let's look at two places where Solomon makes this very clear in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17. And, and by that, you know, what we're saying is that if we are disconnected from an eternal perspective, then everything under the sun makes sense. And the dumbest thing of all is to try to do good if all you're going to do is die. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his own eye, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them. Then I said in my heart, then what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also a vanity. For of, uh, of the wise are uh, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies likes like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Look in chapter 3. Verses 16 through 21 of Ecclesiastes. Same thought, same thought, that if we are disconnected from an eternal perspective, then it doesn't matter what we do. Because if you're wise and die, if there's nothing beyond the here and now, if, you wise, if you're wise and die, what difference does it make? The corpse of a wise man lies next to the corpse of a fool, but they're both dead. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, 
for all his vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth. You see, brothers and sisters, again, there's, here's this challenge. So, so here's what the writer says. My desire is to run according to your commandments, but my soul clings to the dust. And that is, in other words, the specter and the threat of death, the fear and the knowledge of death can sometimes hinder how faithful we are in carrying out the commands of the Lord. Now hold in mind that Solomon, and and some people run away from the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is preaching a sermon, a series of sermons that tells us the importance of an eternal perspective in a fading world. But in doing so, he demonstrates the futility of trying to live life without a greater purpose. And so therefore, I think what he means here in verse 25, when he speaks of the fact that my soul clings to the dust, because notice the way he responds to his, his soul clinging to the dust. He says, my soul clings to the dust. And notice what he says, give me life. Give me life by your word. Because only your word can, can make living make sense even as I'm dying. So I think one of the hindrances that can hinder us from from seeking to run according to the word of God, according to the commands of God, is the specter of death. Either going to too many funerals or feeling the pains of death in our own bodies. And so, therefore, we need God's word. But here's the second thing. Not only does he indicate in verse 25 that that the specter of death, his soul clinging to the dust, can somehow hinder him from carrying out his desire to run according to the commands of God. In verse 28, depression of the soul. Not just death, but depression. Look in verse 28. He, he, says, um, he says, my soul, first in verse 25, he says, my soul clings to the dust. But here in verse 28, he says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Now, I do appreciate the fact that in recent years we have seen a place in Christian thinking for the reality of Christian depression. I don't know about you, I'm just speaking for myself, but nothing is more nauseating than the upbeat, Kool-Aid smile Christian who has nothing but praise the Lord after everything. You see, there are times... In this life, I know, I know who I am in Christ. I know I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in the eyes of God. But in the reality of my flesh, there are shadows that keep me up. There are are things in my flesh that I struggle with. I know who I am, but here's the reality. Sometimes we are sad. One of the things, and we certainly appreciate Brother Granderson and the Granderson family, that wonderful card 
But I shared this at the time of the funeral. One of the things that I greatly appreciated about being brought into the home and then also the atmosphere of the funeral services for David is that there was a sacred sorrow that was allowed by the family members. I love the the aunt who got up and did the poem and, and she said, this is not the time to be strong but rather it is the time to thrust yourself upon the strength of another. And sometimes we don't have room for Christians. I I hate people say, well, I'm not going to have any downers in my life. You know, and I'm tired of you being on uppers, whatever it is. I'm really tired of your Christian uppers. Because sometimes I hurt, and I can tell you where the pain is. It's in my back. But other times I hurt in areas that are not covered by, an, by, by an, uh, a, a chart that shows the human body. Sometimes we are weighed down at the level of the soul. And it's okay. It's okay. And, and, and sometimes you, you just, you, you know, some, someone de- described depression as being tired before you get started. You see, and there are a number of things that loom large within the psyche, the human psyche, because all of us, the totality of our being is fallen. And so there are times when the weightiness of whatever it is that weighs us down in our psyche gets us to a point where, no, we can't smile. In fact, that's, that's one of the things my wife just sent me a, an article from, um, I think it was from Crossway, about Jesus, did, was Jesus, you know, was he upset or did he ever complain to God? And of course he does on the cross. He, he complained from Psalms 22 and, and the writer of that article makes the point that that's the beauty of the Psalms and the Psalms of lament. God gives us a sacred space where we can cry out, Lord, I don't understand, and I do hurt. I trust you, and I hurt. You see, brothers and sisters, here's one of the, and, and if we don't get that straight, then that can be a hindrance, that can be a roadblock in running according to the commandments of God. Do you know how many Christians that don't think that it's very spiritual of you to be depressed? And I love the little glib statements. Look at you. Look at your life. Look at this. You know, look at the life that you have. Look at, the, look at what God has given you. Don't, you don't think we've done that? You don't think the depressed Christian has considered the fact that their soul has been saved by the Son of God? You don't think they have considered the fact that God, by His grace, not their merits, has chosen to save them and has given his son and that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You don't really think that they get it? Sure we get it. It's just that sometimes it still hurts. And the more that we focus on that and the more that we we don't think that we are accepted because of that, then the less running we will do according to his commandments. I think depression can be a way 
to keep us from doing the things that we know we ought to do in the beauty of holiness. But thirdly, not just inner depression, because we are corrupt and we are fallen, even our thoughts are fallen, here's a reality. We are prone to false ways. Verse 29, he not only says, uh, my soul, in verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow, but in verse 29, he says, put, away, put false ways far from me. Why does he ask God to do that? Because false ways are continually continuing to manufacture, manufacture themselves in the ruins of my fallen thoughts. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, even a regenerate man. But the ways therein leadeth to destruction. There are ways that seem right to us that are not right. And therefore we can go in those wrong right ways and and therefore run not according to the commandments of God. Brothers and sisters, let me just let me make you let me remind you of the fact that just because you're sincere about it doesn't make it any less false. Just because this has been handed down to you from your grandmother and great-grandmother doesn't make it not false. A false way is a false way. And anything that is contrary to the word and will of God is a false way. But false ways seem right to fallen men. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. He says that we have been given the ministry of those who labor in the word so that we can be built up in the faith, so that we could be brought to maturity in Christ. And then he says this, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, we, so that we don't have to keep on walking in false ways. Now, false ways come from a variety of sources. We manufacture them all the time. In fact, we have new and improved false ways that are just bursting the market wide open. Just when you thought you've seen it all, here comes a new false way. And we are not shame about it. We will sanctify it and make it religious, but it's still a false way. Anybody ever read the book, um, um, The Prayer of Jabez? Anybody? Show of hands. Are you familiar with the book, Prayer of Jabez? False way, right? Anybody remember the trend? What would Jesus do? False way. Has anyone ever been in a service where the primary thing, the primary move of God was contingent upon oil on your forehead? False way. False ways. They are out there. They are all over the place. Anybody line up in a, for a deliverance service? False way. They are all false ways. How do we know? Because there's only one way to God and there's only one mediator and that is the man, Christ Jesus. No oil, no hand laying, no promise, no, no prayer. There's only one way to God and that's through Christ Jesus. And false ways take us away from running according to the commandments of God. So here's what we see. We see on the one hand that 
God, the, the desire for the people of God is to run according to the word of God. But here's the reality. Here's what has to happen. God has to enlarge our hearts. But the shrinkages of the heart, the things that can shrink the, the human heart that has been renewed by divine grace is the specter of death if it's not held right. It, it's the clutches of, of depression if it's not held right. And it's false ways. You see, those things shrink the heart. And therefore, it's necessary for God to enlarge the heart. Well, that brings us to the third and final thing. And that is, how does God enlarge his, our hearts by his word? How does God enlarge our hearts by his word? Well, three things that, again, are spaced throughout this uh, stanza. The one is, is in verse 27. God gives to us an understanding. In verse 27, uh, in verse 27, he says, Make me to understand the ways of your precepts. God enlarges our hearts by enabling us to understand. Now, I often find myself going back to the book of Ephesians, but one of the things that we see in Ephesians 4, verse 17, is that Paul reminds the Ephesian believers of what they once were. He says, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk according to the darkness of their minds. And then he goes on to say that their understanding is futile. And so what God does, and then he goes down later and he says, but you have not so learned Christ if you have been taught by him. And the teaching of Christ begins with giving us the understanding. And what is it that we understand? Well, it's only through the ministry of God's word that we are given an understanding of who we truly are. And then we understand what we truly need. Who we truly are as the created image bearers of God who are fallen. What we truly need, therefore, is redemption through him. And in redemption through the gift of his son, we are reconnected to our eternal purpose. So therefore, God gives us understanding. He ministers to our understanding. It's, it's, it's sad, but in many cases, people have grown up in church where they can quote Bible verses, but they have no understanding of it. I remember uh, asking, I was at a conference once, and during the Q&A section, uh, the woman asked a question about, um, I think it was about the love of God. And so she was asking a question, but it was wrapped around some things. So I just asked her, well, what do you mean by the love of God. And she went on for about five minutes proving that she didn't know what she meant about the love of God. And it, was, it wasn't intended to embarrass her. I just wanted more clarity on what she said. But oftentimes it, it's, it's kind of surprising, sad, but not, it's not altogether surprising, shouldn't be. But, but how, how few Christians really understand. And God wants us to understand. He wants us. He doesn't. He hasn't, I mean, it, life is enough of a mystery as it is. And granted, we will always understand in part, but we'll still understand. We, we do understand. It's none of this, you know, I just trust. It. No, what is it that you trust? When you say you trust, what do you trust? 
We need to be, we, we need to have an understanding. What does it mean to be saved? And what God does is he gives us an understanding. It's an understanding that enables us to recognize a false way when we see it. You see, we can't be saved fully by the blood of Jesus and need some oil too. It can't be finished and then I just need to know it. If it's finished, it's finished. We need to have an understanding. And God is the one who gives us an understanding. Now hold in mind that everyone who understands the basics of salvation, we don't always fully understand every aspect of it. And some of our lack of understanding is intentional. It's because we don't want to understand. It's the story that I often tell about the two men on the bus late in the afternoon. And as they're driving along, one man all of a sudden goes to sleep and the bus is filling up. And his buddy nudges him and says, hey, you need to wake up or you're going to miss your stop. He says, I'm not asleep, but if I open my eyes, i got to give up my seat. Some of us are not ready to stand up. And so we play like we don't understand. And some of us, as the writer of Hebrews addresses, some of us, the reality is we are immature. And the reason we can't eat solid food is because we're still stuck on baby food. And so here's what God does. He gives understanding. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, the only reason you're going to ask God for wisdom, that means you're going to have to acknowledge that you're not almighty. And not a lot of us are willing to say we don't know something. But here's what we, not only does God minister his word, enlarge our hearts by giving us the capacity to understand God also enlarges our heart through instruction. Wherever he gives understanding, he gives instruction. In verse 26, it says, When I told of my ways, you answered me. And so notice what he says, So teach me your statutes. God instructs. We are told again in Ephesians 4.11, he has given some to be apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors. For what purpose? For the ministry of the word. For teaching. And if God gives teaching, he gives teachers. And you know what teachers need? Students. Right? Right? We, we, can't, we can't say, well, I'm, the, Lord is just, the Lord is my teacher. And that's an insult to the Lord who gave you teachers. He teaches through, he ministers through his appointed means. And when truth is conveyed, there is a recognition that is truth. Yes, we are to study on our own, and we do. But God has given teachers. He's given teachers to minister to his word. And what the ministers of the word do is aim at the supposed understanding that can only come from God. But here's the third and final thing. God enlarges our heart 
through giving us an understanding, an ability to understand, and giving us instruction through which uh, or, or by which our understanding or to which our understanding grasp. But then he gives us the precious instrument of meditation. In verse 27 it says, make me understand the way of your precepts. Give me understanding. And then notice this, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. When God has given us the capacity to understand his grace and God has supplied teachers that communicate that grace, then here's how he enlarges our heart. He gives us those who instruct us in God's gracious gifts so that the understanding heart can now meditate on the wondrous works of God. And God's word as it is mediated or as it is opened up and we meditate meditate upon it sometimes in our beds as we wrestle with the specter of death, as we wrestle with the grips of depression, and even as we deal with the, the fruit of falling, following false paths, we meditate on the word of God. We meditate on the wondrous works of God and God's wondrous work transcends those areas that have kept us away from running as we ought according to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what I I preached uh, this past week on the Aaronic benediction. And in uh, it, which is recorded in the book of Numbers, where the, where um, Aaron uh, Moses tells Aaron, or God tells Moses to tell Aaron that here's what you do: Aaron shall lift up his arm and he and hold out his hand, and he shall bless the people. And here's what he will say: that Yahweh bless you and keep you; that Yahweh be gracious to you. And to and 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 to to, to and, or, or lift up his face or let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and Yahweh lift up his countenance and give you peace. And then at the very next verse, verse twenty-seven. Then he says, "And by this he shall put my name on these people." What God does is he puts his name on us. And in his name are all of his covenant blessings. And so we can meditate on the fact of God's name and what he gives to us. He does give us peace. He does give us grace. He he has saved us. And we can meditate on that. And sometimes when the storms of life and sometimes even those internal storms of life and sometimes the specter of death can be too much for us and God just instructs us in his word. And so when we Meditate on God's wondrous works. That's our motive to continue. That's our motive to continue to serve. Knowing what God has given and what God has done. Our desire, and that is the desire of every Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not desire to keep the commands of God. But in order to do so, our hearts need to be enlarged. And the enlarged heart is the heart that is constantly being tugged at by things that tend to shrink it. But meditating upon God's wondrous works enlarges the heart so that we know of a truth that is greater than our immediate 
circumstances. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you.